Please be seated. As we turn in the scripture reading lesson this morning for Matthew chapter 18, Matthew 1, verse 18, do be in prayer. Dr. Rogers just is suffering a little bit of a nosebleed. So uh, he's feeling all right, but we're praying that the bleed will stop. Me, certainly more than you. (laughs) So our scripture lesson is found in Matthew chapter 1, beginning with verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. May God add his blessing on this, the reading of his word. The Lord gives me interesting things to deal with on Sunday mornings. I have a tendency towards nosebleeds, and this cold has not helped that. But let's look at his word together, and if you don't mind a bloody Kleenex flying around up here, we'll we'll make things go forward. Let us ask God to speak through his word. Father, we ask as we approach this wonderful passage with its truth that is familiar yet so deep and so profound, that you would truly be the one who speaks and enlightens our minds and hearts to worship and adore before the marvel of all you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. Almost every Sunday when we use the Apostles' Creed, we repeat those words that you can reel off so easily. I believe in Jesus Christ God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin, Mary. 
You spoke a slightly different version of it. Same truth, though, in the Nicene Creed, an equally old creed this morning. And as you say these words so blithely, I wonder if you realize that Christmas has very little point unless Jesus really was born, as the Scripture reports, of a virgin woman, that he was begotten entirely by the miracle action of the Spirit of God and not by the normal means of conception of a human father. If, as some critics would want to claim, he was the illegitimate offspring of Mary and some human father, whether Joseph or wild claims have been made, a Roman soldier or all kinds of things, then he is not. He is not God in flesh. And the claims of Jesus would be lies, and his salvation would be a hoax. A great deal hinges on what we call the virgin birth. For some 18 centuries of Christian history, there was very little, <coughs> very little significant opposition to the, <coughs> to the teaching of this doctrine. Early church fathers taught about the virgin birth from about 100 A.D. onward with no real opposition, no debates going on, because the Scriptures so obviously taught it. It was inescapable. When the great church councils were convened, Nicaea, from which this Nicene Creed comes, 325 A.D., one of the earliest of the great councils of the church fathers, that subject was not debated. When the Council of Chalcedon in 405, another of the epic councils where the doctrine of Christ was considered and worked on and and hammered out in human terms and creeds, there was no big debate about the virgin birth. It was not under dispute. Reformers like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and all the others endorsed the doctrine as being a biblical doctrine. Interestingly, many early scientists like Blaise Pascal, Galileo, Isaac Newton, Michael Faraday, all of them evangelical Christians, those men affirmed in their writings, their scientific writings, the virgin birth of Christ. Ironically, we have to come to the 21st century when science stands poised at the edge of being able to tinker with human DNA to re-engineer human beings when we stand at a point of possibly treating fertilized embryos as tissue banks for human spare parts, in a day like this when man can enter so deeply into the process of conception and the science around it, it is this age that contains thousands and millions of people who would frankly doubt that Almighty God caused a child to be conceived by a woman apart from normal sexual relations of a husband and a wife. Now, just to keep terminology straight, we really should remind you that what we call the virgin birth, that's a common term, is actually the virgin conception. We're talking about how Christ was conceived in Mary's womb. When an egg in her uterus subdivided into a multiplying clump of cells. The Bible says the miraculous influence of the Holy Spirit 
was what caused that to happen. No man had had intimate relations with Mary before that time. She later on did become the wife of Joseph in every way and had natural children with him. They are named in the Gospel of Mark and I believe the Gospel of John as well. And it was her firstborn and only her firstborn that had this marvelous thing about him, that he was so entirely unique, not just in that family, but in all of human history. Because of the billions of men who have ever lived, only Jesus ever preexisted his mother. He had ruled the heavens from creation as the prince of creation at his father's side. But there in Bethlehem, in that rude place, probably a cave, perhaps with a building built across its mouth to act as a stable, there, in one of the crudest structures and situations that could be found on the earth, he came to be born as a red-faced, squalling infant eagerly seeking to feed at his young mother's breast. God in flesh shared a pile of straw with common animals and a homeless couple. Great is the mystery and the marvel of our God. This morning we have considered the virgin birth on previous occasions. It's so important that I I look carefully every Christmas to balance the things that we talk about at Christmas time. We don't preach on the subject every year, but I am determined that we will not have a class of young children growing up in this church or teenagers growing up in this church who will not hear about this doctrine. So if the things I say are somewhat repetitive, we have spoken about them in similar ways in the past. But the first thing to say to you before you will grasp why the virgin conception of Christ is at all relevant to your life is to make you understand that this event is taught by the Word of God as a down-to-earth historic event. And we need to be familiar with the evidence of that. The virgin conception of Jesus is a consistently biblical historic event. Let me go over some texts. You've heard about these before, but you need to see them in terms of their sweep and of their cumulative evidence when taken together. The earliest text is Genesis 3.15, a wonderful verse that many regard, most theologians regard as the very first prophetic mention of Christ in all of the Bible. And it is found in a very strange situation, a place where God is speaking a word of condemnation upon the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And he speaks prophetically to that one, to Satan, who has motivated or caused the sin of the man and woman and in in putting a curse on him, the Lord said, the offspring of the woman will crush your head and you will strike at his heel. That's a very fascinating forewarning of what would take place many centuries down the road as Jesus Christ would indeed see combat with Satan and go to the cross and his heel would indeed be struck at, but Satan would end up being the one who was crushed. 
in the defeat of the cross and resurrection. Now, it's so interesting that Moses, the author of the book of Genesis, inspired by God, would have used the phrase that he used there to call the coming Messiah the offspring of the woman. A very unusual phrase. A phrase that in his situation, almost no author would have used because it was your father's ancestry that mattered in those ancient patriarchal times, not your mother. Why was he called the offspring of the woman? Unless God was hinting at something yet to come. In itself, that text does not prove the virgin conception. I'm not su- suggesting that it does. But again, it's, it's part of a bigger whole. And the next text we come to in the Old Testament is one you will not be surprised by, most of you. It is Isaiah 7, verse 14. A key text The text reads, I'll just read the verse and then explain its setting a bit, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now this was a prophecy made by Isaiah to King Ahaz. Ahaz was basically an unbeliever. God spoke in many different ways and gave signs to Ahaz, but Ahaz wasn't listening and didn't want to hear what was being said through the prophets to him. And so in Isaiah 7.14, you have something that comes like a climax, an epic announcement. It's preceded by the word, behold, or listen to this one. This is very important. And the prophet predicts the birth of a wonderful child who would bring his people salvation. Now, when would he come? Where would he come? Who was he? Prophecy has a a way of, of being indistinct like that. And there are people who try to say, well, it must have been fulfilled in something that happened in the time of Ahaz. And there are those who would say, well, it was a prediction of the son of Ahaz, and he had a real son. His name was Hezekiah who became king after his father. There's a problem, though, with the idea of this prophecy applying to the king's own son, Hezekiah. As best we reckon these things, the Old Testament experts say Hezekiah was already nine years old when Isaiah spoke this prophecy. And even if it was intending to speak him of him, why in the world would the son, the natural son of a king of Israel, be called God with us. That made no sense. So this great announcement, it appears, looked to an an untold time in the future when a wonder child would come who literally would be the presence of God. Now, there are liberal critics who will point out, and and you may know the discussion over the years that people have said, well, the the Hebrew word translated as virgin in Isaiah 7.14, there is more than one word that could be used there. There is one very distinct clinical word in Hebrew that could have been used for a virgin, and that wasn't used. The word alma was used, which is more translated, more often translated in Hebrew, simply young woman. So they say, look, this isn't teaching a virgin birth, but to them we reply. When you add up the way the Hebrew term is used throughout the Old Testament, alma, young woman, is consistently and always, without any exception I know of, used to indicate an unmarried young woman. So there is not really that lack of 
of distinctiveness or precision that many would want to say about that term. We shift from Isaiah 7 into the New Testament in our text today, which Keith read, Matthew 1, 18 to 25, and you notice that in this text, Matthew, again, we believe, writing under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit, claimed that the birth of Jesus to Mary was a fulfillment of Matthew seven 14. We've been studying this, this gospel, and I've pointed out that many, many times Matthew says it was done in order to fulfill. This was to fulfill. That phrase is constantly on his lips, and he was seeing this birth, which he heard about more, it appears, through the testimony of Joseph than perhaps Mary's eyewitness testimony, which Luke tends to have. Matthew reports this and says, this happened, and it fulfills this prophecy. Now, if you say it didn't happen and it doesn't fulfill the prophecy, then you're attacking the integrity of this gospel author. Keep in mind, Matthew was a tax accountant, a tax accountant, one of those individuals who would go around with his pencil and he didn't have a calculator. Maybe he had an abacus in those days. I don't know, but he was concerned to have just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. He was used to adding up columns of figures and making them balance out, not a man given to wild, mystical visions. And he is plainly stating here that Mary was pregnant before marital relations with Joseph, and more so stating that in his understanding, according to the eyewitnesses he has spoken to and the revelation that God gave through angels to these people, that this conception was the mysterious action of the Spirit of God and nothing else. Now, alongside the integrity of Matthew as a reporter, we have in this text the reaction of Joseph. We so easily forget what it must have been like for him. You know, we've, we've wrapped Christmas in a sort of a cotton blanket, a pink blanket of sentimentality that we don't understand the, the rather startling and shocking and even potentially shameful and scandalous circumstances that were here in, this, in what was read to you. Mary was discovered to be pregnant. How do you tell this to Joseph? How do you tell this to the man to whom you've been legally engaged in the Kiddushan covenant of the Old Testament, which was a legal binding engagement, not like today, well, here's a ring, I think I'll marry you, and six months later, no thanks, give me my ring back. It wasn't done that way. It was this, it, you went to the local registry before the rabbi, and you registered a legal engagement. It, had, it required a legal divorce to break it. And a legal divorce was allowed to break it if one of the partners was found to have sinned sexually in the time of that engagement. And we read how Joseph, quietly, being an honorable man, thought he would put Mary aside, spare her pain, and move himself out of this position of scandal. And it required the revelation of God to him in a dream to turn his thoughts and to give him confidence to go forward. Matthew one twenty five makes a definite claim here that Joseph did not have any normal relations with Mary from the time of the conception of Jesus until after he was born. We can assume that Joseph at least gave that testimony. You can say, well, he's lying. That's your privilege to say. But he certainly told that. And you're disputing if you tear down what is here with an author and his text 
that throughout the entirety of it, many, many chapters, has proven to be historically accurate down to the last little details. Well, next we mention Luke chapter 1, verses 26 and following through about verse 38. Repeatedly there, Mary is called a virgin. When God's angel comes and reveals to her the truth that she will be the vessel of a wonderful act of God and this birth, and of course the reaction she has is total bewilderment. She asks that question, how? Of course she would say, how shall this be? I I have never known a man. I am engaged to be married, but, but that cannot happen. My mother has told me enough that I know that cannot happen. That cannot be. And Luke one thirty five tells how, to the extent that we are told, that it comes by the power of the Most High God overshadowing her. Now you say, that's not a very scientific explanation. Well, I tell you that it's all the explanation God chose to give us. And I want you to remember something that I think is very, very important. Who's the author of this gospel of Luke? Luke, the Greek-trained physician. Oh, you say doctors didn't know very much in those days. They were sort of like barely above the level of quacks. Not so. The Greeks had an understanding of the science of medicine that was quite deep and comprehensive as far as things could go in that period. They were the premier scientists of their age. Luke had the best medical training of anyone in the whole concept of obstetrics and gynecology. He was no fool. He was a man of science. And he believed Jesus was miraculously conceived. What about the Gospel of Mark? If you're astute, you know that Mark does not have a birth story. It it enters the, the narrative of the life of Jesus when he is already an adult and so the whole story of, uh, that Matthew and Luke contain is not there at all in, in Mark, but there's an interesting little thing, little a, a sort of a passing indicator in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. At a time when we believe Joseph the carpenter must have died because he doesn't appear in the adult life of Jesus at all, and people are marveling at Jesus when he comes to preach and teach, and they say something curious Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Now you say, maybe they just said that because Joseph was dead. Well, once again, that is not fitting the custom of the day. You were still your father's son in the first century. And even if he was understood to be Joseph's son and Joseph was dead, they would have honored the dead father by saying, isn't this Joseph's son? But his neighbors didn't say that. Isn't this the son of Mary? That doesn't tell us what they had in their mind or what they understood, but it does tell us that they did not view Jesus as the natural son of Joseph at the very least. Another glancing reference, and the only one from the Apostle Paul, who may, because of the way he wrote in an early time, he may, some speculate, have not pronounced too much about the virgin birth because Mary was still alive. And there was a certain measure to which she would want or need protection from authorities and not having things emphasized. Whether that's so or not, we don't know, but it's an interesting thing to think about. But in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, once again, Paul uses an unusual 
form of speech. When he described Jesus in a curious phrase, saying he was born of a woman, born under the law. You say, well, what's wrong with that? Of course he was born of a woman. He wasn't born of a man. But still, that's not the way they talked. That's not the way they talked in the first century. Born of a woman, pointing that out seems to have something unusual about it that may well be the indicator that Paul certainly accepted. And there's there's nothing whatsoever in Paul that contradicts the idea of the virgin birth. Now, if you take these accumulated texts, and there are some lesser ones as well, but those are the main ones that we would deal with. And you say, well, I'm sorry, you've put them together, you've made a case, but I can't accept it. Well, I say then you have to ask yourself, are you then predisposed against the idea of anything miraculous accomplished by God? It's probable that you are. Because we're dealing with fairly plain meanings here of fairly straightforward biblical narrative. And what is interesting, you find that those who say, well, the Bible doesn't teach the virgin birth, are usually looking to dispose of the miraculous element entirely. They don't want a supernatural Christ. They want a Christ who is as natural as they can make Him. And they don't accept either the consequences of His cross for our justification. They don't accept the bodily resurrection on many occasions either. Folks, the Bible, if it is inaccurate, inaccurate in what it reports about the birth of Jesus, we have to ask what other mistakes, what other deceptions may be there if we have been led astray and deceived on something as important as this? I choose the easier path. The easier path is to believe in a well-attested historic document that proves its accuracy down to minute details where we can check it in, in very easy ways. It is reliable. Its authors are authoritative when they speak the truth of God. The virgin conception of Jesus is consistently a biblical doctrine. Now, secondly, this morning, and I have a long second point, and that's it this morning, but if you agree that the Bible teaches the virginal conception of Christ, that this pre-existing Word, as He's called in John chapter 1, indeed the one who was with God and was God, says John 1, at the beginning of all things, became human flesh, you have to ask the other question, not just the fact of it, but you always have to ask, so what? What difference does it make? Does the virgin birth or conception have significance for you and me? I'm going to spare you this morning because I actually would have six subpoints that I could give here, but I'm only going to give you three. The three that I think are the most significant of all. Here's the first Does the virgin birth have significance for you and me? Yes, it does, because it influences whether your whole view of Jesus Christ is founded on a natural foundation or a supernatural foundation. Colossians 2.9 says of Christ this, In Him the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in a human body. Remove this virgin conception and a few other things, the bodily resurrection, the ascension into heaven, and you have a human Jesus. 
That's what our age delights in, doesn't it? We're through, you know, we see the books being churned out. They're churned out practically every month, from the Da Vinci Code to the Lost Gospel of Judas, so-called, who, you name it. One thing after another that's telling us most of them hoaxes so flimsy that no scholar takes them seriously, but the general public says, aha, aha, they finally torn Christianity apart. They've made Jesus a natural man, just one of us, feeble like us. And that's what everybody wants, a lesser Christ. A Christ you can poke holes in, a Christ you can find to be imperfect, a a Christ who who would want to marry Mary, Mary Magdalene or whatever foolishness someone wants to invent and and popularize. The Nicene Creed calls him very God of very God. It's one of the mightiest phrases ever put down by ancient fathers as they summarize the theology of the Bible. Very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Is that a biblical conclusion? Or were these early theologians sort of fevered in their imagination and just exaggerating things? Well, as I said, everybody wants a humanized Jesus today. How easily we can take these various things. You know, the gospel according to Judas is the latest one to come along. Nobody seems to be too interested in the fact that it's based on a text that came out somewhere between 400 and 500 A.D. that's been known and dismissed for a long time by serious scholars. But now we bring it out and say, aha, Judas wrote a gospel, and look what he said. What he said was of no consequence, and it wasn't written by Judas. It was one of many fakes, many hoaxes perpetrated in the early centuries of the church. Scholars know that. Real scholars know it. But you can find somebody with a Ph.D. after his name who wants to sell books. It's not hard to do. We want to humanize Jesus. We want a Jesus we can bring down to our level. And and in many cases, people want a Jesus they can knock down to the floor so they can trample on him. Now, of course, we admit that there is a vast mystery about the how of God entering a human embryo. There's a mystery there. Well, there's also a mystery about the Trinity, one God in three persons. There's also a mystery about how a a, a three-days-dead corpse became reanimated and was visibly recognized when he appeared and spoke and how he was ascended into heaven. There are many mysteries that surround Jesus Christ. How could he remain sinless? He wasn't stainless steel. He went through real temptations. He battled them, but he conquered. If we're dealing with the second person of the triune God, wouldn't you expect that there'd be something supernatural about his birth? The 19th and early 20th century theologian at Princeton, B.B. Warfield, said this, born into our race, he was. Born of our race, he never was. There is the supernatural foundation to the person of Christ who was nevertheless a real man. Secondly, in significance terms, the Virgin conception and miraculous birth of Jesus serves as a pattern, spiritually speaking, for every Christian's new birth by grace through faith. In other words, as an event of history and biology, the way Jesus was conceived is unparalleled. It doesn't happen to anyone else. 
but in a spiritual way, figuratively, but yet really. What happened to Mary occurs millions of times when the Spirit of God overshadows an unbelieving, dead mind, locked in its sin and blind to the things of God, and God awakens that mind to see His Son for who He is and to trust in Him. The theologians call this regeneration. You might call it the new birth. That's just as good. John chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 tell us that this preexistent Christ, quote, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And here was the result that we might become children of God, born not of natural descent, you see. Spiritually, we are born not of natural descent, not of a husband's decision, but born of God. We, too, have a birth that has its powerful conception in the working of God by His Holy Spirit when we come to Christ and show our faith in Him and confess Him as Lord and repent of sin and trust Him for eternity. We can call every Christian conversion a kind of virgin conception, if you will. Because before you could believe in Him as Lord, God must bring you alive. The quickening of God, the regeneration of God, precedes faith. He gives you the faith to trust in Christ. And this rebirth is the sovereign miracle of His own divine grace. Those who have experienced it will think of the virgin birth as a history event and say, praise God, that's exactly what happened to me. Christ was born in me through no endeavor of my own for which I can receive credit. A third way that the significance of the virgin conception of Jesus should impress us is that I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, it supports a great reverence for unborn human life. This is not a social issue over which Christians who accept the Word of God and accept the coming of Christ into the world can possibly have a fundamental difference upon. There should be a tremendous reverence for unborn human life. We cannot assign the date or the moment when an embryo in the womb of any woman suddenly becomes a human being. And therefore, the only proper conclusion is to regard it as such from the moment of conception onwards. And if God would use a pinhead-sized embryo, something you would need a microscope to really look at effectually as the vehicle for His Son to come and be among us as a real man, how dare we look down upon that which God employed as His vehicle? We need to pledge ourselves every Christmas anew to be people who will protect the unborn as if we were protecting Jesus Christ Himself. There's no option here, ladies and gentlemen. There's no option. The unborn are God's creation. Mary, most likely, all the experts say, was no more than a teenage girl. Marriages happen very early, as early as 12 and 13 in that society. Here she was, a very young girl, Picture a girl in middle school or early high school entering this frightening dilemma 
of bearing the Son of God. But in the immediate sense, what does she face? She faces social ostracism, disapproval of the religious establishment. Many would say possibly the reason she went to see her cousin Elizabeth in a farther town was to simply get out of the way of the local neighborhood. And the wagging tongue says her pregnancy became obvious. Who would shelter her? Who would protect her? Who? We should praise God for Joseph, that quiet, faithful figure who received so little attention, who was willing at his own shame and his own social cost to stand by her and to be her protector, humanly speaking. If Mary was in our congregation in 2007, would we accord her acceptance, support, counsel, aid? We have done so many times in the past with mothers in crisis pregnancy situations. It is not the time, it is not the hour to wag our fingers at them. It is time to embrace them and to embrace the child who stirs within them. Malcolm Muggeridge, the late social commentator of Britain, wrote one time, he said, Mary's pregnancy in circumstances of poverty with an unknown father was the obvious 20th century cause for an abortion. No-brainer. We in this congregation must be. There is no option. We must be a family in Christ who have arms open with real compassion, with help and with guidance to any young woman who comes bearing a child, regardless of what the circumstances have been. Do we say, oh, that should not have happened? The time for that is past. The time is to protect the unborn as God's creation. Never let it be said that a young woman in such a situation would be turned away from this church of Jesus Christ as her safe haven and think that she had a safe haven in Planned Parenthood or the abortion clinic. Now, in the final analysis, the virgin conception of Jesus Christ is exhibit A of the mighty power of God working in the realm of human weakness. It it fulfills 1 Corinthians one twenty seven, where we read that God chose weak things of this world to shame the strong. He chose lowly things, things that are not to nullify things that are so that no one might boast before him. When Mary wondered how this amazing thing would occur, the angel gave her this answer, and it's the only answer he gave. With God, nothing shall be impossible. That is the theme of Christmas. That is the theme of God incarnate in the fragile little embryo, launching a work that would change the whole world. Dr. J. Gresham Machen wrote what is still today the authoritative Protestant book on the virgin birth of Christ. It was written in the early 20th century, and nobody has exceeded it for sheer scholarship. Machen concluded this. He said, The eternal Son of God, through whom the universe was made, did not despise the virgin's womb. Oh, he said, It is not strange that this wonder has always given offense to the natural man, 
But in this truth, we find God's redeeming love expressed. In that babe so wonderfully conceived is our Savior, who thus, in other words, by that means, became man to die for us and to bring us to peace with God. No obstacle is too great for this mighty God. Do you think there really is a dead heart of unbelief, a heart of of stone, as it were, in, in spiritual things that God cannot awaken and give a transforming birth and the pulse beat of eternity in that life where all was deadness before? He has done it time after time after time. If you have no personal acquaintance with what I'm saying, I'm going to bow my head and pray. Maybe you need to just make what I say your prayer. Bow with me. Oh God, my sin has wounded me and left me as if I was a dead man or a dead woman before you. I realize I need nothing less than a whole new birth. By that same miracle power you used to bring Jesus into this world, oh God, if you are the God of all creation, Bring to birth in me a new creation formed in the image of Jesus Christ. Let your eternal life be born in me, and let it be today. Amen. And Ladies and gentlemen, if you will pray that, 